0: Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something
1: about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome
0: back to the first full team edition of the Hidden History Happy Hour for 2024 2023. Alex cheers, you'll see my glass is empty.
1: Uh Well, okay, I'm ready I'm ready for booze chat when you're ready to. My glass is currently empty as well.
0: Well, here's so we're very introspective people here on the Hidden History um, uh, Happy Hour and we try to always make things a little bit better for you our listeners. And one of the things we realized after our first year, empty cheers for our first year, geez. um is We haven't talked as much about booze as we promised you. And, uh, you know, some of you complain. Now, for those of you who complain, you better be writing in and tell us what booze stories you want us to talk about. But I have a doozy for today that ties right into our first story from More Lessons from History, not the OG, Volume 2. But first, Alex... Uh, And I'm doing this without a cocktail, uh, because this is how seriously I take it. We need to address, and I'm not being partisan here in the United States, the elephant in the room. Uh, Mm -hmm. Republicans are elephants, Democrats are donkeys here in the U.S. Or asses, as some people would say. There's been a lot of chatter, Alex, about the fact that you and I have appeared so many separate episodes at the end of 2022. Why weren't we together? Uh, Somebody's sick. Uh, is is there a tiff between you? And I just would like to set the record straight for all of our viewers who have speculated that we may not like each other that much. You're wrong. We hate each other. We can't stand each other. We've never been able to stand (laughs) each other. Thanks, Brian. That's really nice. This is all a joke, people. We've had travel (laughs) schedules. Alex was on his honeymoon. In case you haven't figured this out yet, we're not in the same location. We're uh, seven or eight time zones away. So it's just holiday scheduling. Nothing to worry about. We're the best of friends. You will see us live in London. More notes about that coming soon. Right, Alex? Or do you want to dispute me? No, that is correct. All right. Now let's talk about the booze. So we're going to tell a story today, one of my favorite stories now from More Lessons from History, about Ernest Hemingway's brother. And I don't remember if i have mentioned this before on the show, but I love Hemingway. This is why, as all of our viewers know, I use so few words, because I'm such a fan of Hemingway. And I've read everything, I'm pretty sure. And I grew up very close to where his Michigan stories were located. And I've dug in over the years into the mythology of Ernest Hemingway, which there is a lot of. One of which I hope I haven't told this story on the podcast before, but if I have, our viewers will indulge me and our new viewers will hopefully appreciate it. Alex, do you recall that Ernest Hemingway was once uh, approached in a bar in Miami and offered a bar bet, which I know, uh, Pub Wager, I know you love there. Um, And the bet was, what is the shortest full short
1: story you can write? we yes we did this did live. we tell we, this before we did this live when we were in new york and i gave you the i gave the punchline
0: oh okay well i'm gonna do it again because a lot of people weren't <laughs> in new york yeah uh so hemingway a, a legend has it takes out a cocktail napkin and writes on the napkin baby shoes for sale
1: never used never used which for sale just baby, you, right? baby shoes never used
0: yeah so that's uh thing one. Thing two though, getting back to the booze which we promised a minute ago is I believe if you went and asked 20 random people who know anything about Hemingway, what is his favorite drink? What was Hemingway's favorite drink? They would say, got a guess Alex.
1: Uh yes, I do actually. It's going to be something he was having in Cuba. So um pisco sour or was he having lots of uh margaritas? Uh You're in the right. Me- you're in the right Megroni's, ballpark. You're adjacent. Okay. All right, go on. Most people
0: would say it was the mojito. And okay. a big reason they would say that is there's a particular bar in uh, Havana which has a framed, and we'll put this in the show notes, a framed handwritten note signed Ernest Hemingway, which says, my mojito is at La Bodiquita, forgiveness for the pronunciation, my daiquiri is El Floridita. Well, it turns out This is a complete fabrication. (laughs) And nowadays, Alex, when we have no sense of humor, this would result in multiple lawsuits. But the owner of this particular bar thought it would be funny. He knew Hemingway. He had Hemingway's actual handwriting to just fake this. And tens of thousands of people have flocked to this bar over the years thinking that this is authentic. And according to this article in eater.com, which we'll put in the show notes, there is absolutely no evidence at all that Hemingway ever enjoyed a mojito. And Hemingway, as you know, wrote a lot about the drinks he drank. So you'd think if he had drank a mojito, there would be some written record of it. Now, what he did drink and is documented, Alex, is what you're
1: drinking. I am having some rum today, actually. I'm not having so. I'm sorry. I, I misled you. I, I was going to have some, but he certainly, he sure as hell had some rum. Yes. Um, I am having a, a rum called Takamaka, which may be familiar to anyone who's been lucky enough to go to the Seychelles. Um, I bought a, um, an industrial-sized duty-free bottle um, coming back from my honeymoon, and I'm going to have it with some ice, and uh, this Takam, a merry purist will disapprove. But this is a coconut flavored rum Ah. and, uh, you know, just designed for the teenage market. And 15. And I find it absolutely delicious for an early evening uh, tipple and aperitif.
0: Well, it makes perfect sense that the Seychelles would produce good rum, but I have never heard that before. So that's uh,
1: news for our fans. Booze news booze news it, it is good i could will of course concede they're not famous for it but they're not really famous for producing alcohol of any kind and most countries Bear. do produce alcohol of some kind or other um the other thing i was thinking about for your cuban connections cuba libre um yeah. he must have but it's hemingway that took me to you know there's a the the um the word fine or fiend um for a for a brandy um it means a particularly a particular kind of particular quality of brandy uh, which he refers to offhand in i think it must be um, a movable feast when he's yeah. in Paris, but uh, but he, had, I'm sure he has some of his characters talk about it as well as in his memoirs. Yeah. And uh, Hemingway drinks a few fiends or fines at the end of a night. And um, so I years ago went away and looked that up, which I looked, which I had to look up again, embarrassingly, because I'm reading at the moment. Um, uh, Alec Waugh's memoirs the older less successful mm. brother of uh, of um, Evelyn Waugh which ties in with the story we're going to tell yeah. um, brothers who haven't enjoyed the, quite the same um, success. Alec Waugh's memoirs consist mostly of, uh, of long stories at which the punchline is a minor celebrity of the 1930s so the name doesn't mean anything to you right. um, wrapped around his disclosure that he would put a ring around the date of any date in which he got his leg over Uh, And doggedly tells you each and every time he was successful in 1931 in scoring with the opposite sex. But he does tell a story about which I'm going to I'm determined to get into volume three. Uh, at least it's a footnote of um he and his brother sitting on their tradition. If they saw a girl they liked at the same time, they would toss a coin, and the one who won the coin cost got three days of uninterrupted first opportunity before the other could try. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's really crass. On the other hand, it's quite telling about these um two brothers. So I, I um, it wasn't wasted time reading. In addition to reminding me of Fiend fine brandy.
0: Well, there probably have been sisters have done it, uh, similar thing, just to be uh, non non genderist about it. Now I. I'm going to be enjoying what is documented as one of Hemingway's favorite drinks. And it comes from one of his favorite bars and one of his favorite bartenders, again in Havana. And the bartender's name is Gregorio. So it's called Gregorio's RX. And the official cocktail that apparently Papa enjoyed, at least according to the marketing of the bar, was uh, rum, of course, one ounce of honey syrup made from a ratio of one to one water and honey, which I can't, I'm not, I can't do that. So I've got to substitute. Uh, too, ounce too of lime sweet, too juice. Too sweet for
1: you? Yeah, you, it's you too, And think...
0: also just the idea of honey plus water. I don't know. i will say honey or water, not not the mix. Oh, um, uh, and then mint leaves, uh, which I don't have. So I'm not going to have that. And lime juice. But other than that, all the proportions are the same. I've okay. put it Go in a shaker. shaker. You I'm shaking, going to do staring. this off staring, camera, but yeah, shaking not stirred. I'm going to do this off camera because there's a high likelihood I will spill it all over myself. If I try to do it in front of the camera, oh, looks good though. I got to say, looks pretty good. All right. So I'm going to post the recipe in the show notes it does and good. well, let me wait before I make a recommendation. Okay. Yes. I would say our fans should try that probably more of a summer drink than this time of year, but, um, you know, it's summer in the Seychelles, right?
1: It is now, as you're talking about, uh, that I I'm not sure it is the summer. I think anyway, um,
0: summer, somewhere, summer, Australia. summer
1: somewhere, um, as you were telling that it reminded me that we were in a bar once and someone that we used to know was trying to order a particular type of whiskey. And this whiskey had a honey, uh, variant and, um, and they were trying... Not, they, that's not what they ordered. And they got the one with honey and... Uh... They went back to the bar and said, you give me the one with honey. Can I have one without? They, without objection, exchanged the glasses for another one with the honey in it. And this person was getting and more and more annoyed. And, and of course, if that happens once, it's not particularly funny. It happened like 10 times. Yeah. And, and we were all getting drunker and drunker anyway. So the objection made less and less sense. And they just kept, it just kept coming. And I realized there was actually, other than the bar closing or one of us dying or something, there was going to be no end to the succession of free, unconsumed, honey-flavored drinks. So that's what your your honey cocktail makes me think about.
0: It was Whiskey Groundhog Day. We was. was. Yeah, Groundhog Day coming up. I don't know if we'll have a Groundhog Day episode or not. What we will have eventually, though, is a first-year retrospective episode where we put clips of our favorite episodes and we just talk a little bit about them. So all of you guys out there right in, tell us what your favorite episodes are that we might like to feature in our one-year anniversary. And again, Cheers to everybody who's been with us, stuck with us. It's been a great year. It's been a great uh, year. Alex is a whole book later. We're both uh, uh, either married or engaged. And uh, I, I credit it all to The Hidden History Happy Hour.
1: I credit much of it to The Hidden History Happy Hour. I'm not sure. <laughs> my, my wife, of course, predated the books by several years. So It is like true. There. Um uh, what was I going to say? I was also going to say, because um, when we post this episode, we'll have just had Martin Luther King Day in the United yeah. States. People should uh, go back and listen to the episode that we cut with Terry. It must have been episode two, I think, right yeah. back at the beginning. Uh, so it's not a, um, a visual episode, I'm afraid, but the audio is really, really good about yeah. uh, about Martin Luther King.
0: Yeah, that was our that was our second episode, and um, you know our first episode was a little bit uh, personal for me. So I think uh, putting that in our second episode was pretty good on our part, and we will certainly get back to those themes. But uh, have a listen, and also let us know what your favorite episodes are, so that we can uh, do them in our annual review. And without further ado, Alex, unless you have any more ado, I do. I have no more ado. Let's talk about Ernest Hemingway's brother
1: all right you've already changed the order but i'll do that um it's (laughs) i like um... to keep it fresh no fair enough we were just talking about hemingway look it's not a slight uh on lester hemingway to say that he was a less successful writer than ernest because yeah who uh otherwise uh, related or not has um achieved more renown but despite having published a novel uh based on his wartime experience Uh, Lester, who um, the history books say, uh, was a man of charm and bonhomie who took pride in uh, rather than resenting his um, brother's successes, was really not breaking any literary records. And indeed, his most successful book uh, was imaginatively and unpredictably called My Brother, Ernest Hemingway. I mean, it's as unimaginative as calling a sequel more lessons from history, isn't it? Almost as good. Yeah. So less conventional than that uh, memoir um was what he did with the proceeds he started a new country uh, new atlantis was an eight foot by 30 foot raft i have not got those proportions wrong eight feet uh, wide <laughs> 30 feet long by the way an equally an equally imaginative name for a country as his book in, indeed uh in 1964 when the big bucks from the royalties of his book were rolling in to fund the founding of his new country he towed that raft six miles out from the shore of Jamaica and declared it his own nation. And actually, he he was very magnanimous. Um, half was gifted to the United States. So he claimed <laughs> half of it as a new um, country. Had this Guano Act claim that he spuriously suggested helped him prop up the <laughs> the suggestion this was a new country. Anyway. He tethered the um, raft to an old car engine block. This is very sophisticated, right? This is how you start a country. Tethered the the raft to an old engine block from a car, which he dropped to the ocean floor, which at this point was unusually, and he'd done his homework, uh, a mere 50 feet deep, um, uh, rather than much deeper, at a point which was then outside the territorial limits of any country. Um, So, got some land, got some chutzpah, Bob's your uncle, Ernest's your brother, uh, you've got a country. The imaginativeness of our friend Lester's writing is reflected once again in the establishment of New Atlantis's Constitution, uh, which is identical to the United States Constitution with the words <laughs> United States uh, replaced throughout with the words New Atlantis. Which is pretty interesting because you got to believe that he wasn't holding
0: slaves or anything. So there had to be a lot of provisions uh, in 1964 that were pretty much superfluous.
1: Yeah, but it's just easier to copy and paste, right? Uh, As anyone in law today will tell you. Um, Small countries dream big. So oceanographic and environmental projects were envisaged. Um, He was really quite far ahead of his time in his desire to clean up the ocean. Uh, Stamps, it's always stamps with these Mm -hmm. uh, micro countries, were issued. Got to have the stamps. Indeed. There were plans for expansion of the country's territory. He planned to have huge piles of rocks uh, placed on the seafloor to expand New Atlantis. Which China is doing now? Uh, Yes, on a a more successful scale. Uh, And in a pleasing surprise, I must report that New Atlantis elected Lester president in a landslide. Mm. All right. So that infant country had a rather temporary uh, population of six Uh, one Lester Hemingway, one Mrs. Lester Hemingway, Hemingway children times two, and two, and I say this with great admiration for a discipline I practice myself, two plainly rather optimistic. Public relations practitioners. (laughs) Um, But things were to grow, was their plan. The trouble was that the dreamers of New Atlantis had forgotten the fate of old Atlantis, It was broken up soon after its glorious birth by a tropical storm and bits of the state were sunk and bits of the state were salvaged or ransacked by local fishermen, depending on your source of preference and with no disrespect meant uh, to the treasures of a nation and without being frivolous about New Atlantis, I don't think it makes much of a difference whether they were salvaging or or ransacking and therefore not one trace of New Atlantis remains and in a rare admission uh, of the need to correct something i wish to revise what i said in volume one the og lessons from history when i maintained that the fire that swept across sealand the realm of prince roy mm-hmm. was perhaps the worst uh, disaster ever to fall a nation by percentage of territory because total elimination to- being wiped from the face of god's earth rather tops even that so look it's quirky and it's fun but i'm afraid brian as usual you know better than me it- Hemingway fan like me um, uh, I'm afraid as a standard Hemingway yarn turns out it does not end happily Uh, Lester echoed his famous brother even to the very end taking his own life in 1962 Um, excuse me in 1982 Um, sorry but whilst um, which ironically actually exactly um, 20 years after he had um, uh, 18 years uh, forgive me after he'd founded his uh, country Whilst his new Atlantean uh, venture was plainly pretty quixotic, it was also brave and it was well-intentioned and it was a project all of his own, not dependent uh, on others, uh, related or not, and it was trailblazing. So, yeah, as you will know, and there are many um, famous and, and wealthy individuals now doing this, seascaping, building permanent, inverted commas, land. Sometimes outside. called sea sea-steading. seasteading too, yeah outside existing countries, on the oceans, uh, done for reasons of ecology, philosophy, tax. Um, That's now quite a thing. And it's taken seriously by some people with bigger pockets uh, than Hemingway, but equally big ideas. So I say, score one for the lesser known Hemingway.
0: Yeah, great story. A lot to say I'm going to move from the more frivolous to the less frivolous. Um, I guess one... Um, uh, there, there is a modern sea seasteading movement and I've had conversations actually strangely enough with some of the people involved in it and um, my first question to them is always the same and it always goes back to one of my favorite subjects pirates it's all well and good to have your own country and your own tax system and your own governance but what happens when the pirates come?
1: there's no the, navy the, the trouble is you you then invite people who are you know commit full tilt and they say don't you worry about that we've got our own defenses too um so and i'm well, not sure that's a good humanity outcome for humanity if, so, well, if we've armed the state
0: if if they have uh, if they have those defenses yeah um and the second thing is i think it's impossible that our listeners and viewers are not comparing um uh, New Atlantis to to um, Sealand, you know, given right. the OG story. Right. And I, I haven't actually written a tally down, but it kind of sounds like maybe uh, Mr. Hemingway had more legitimacy than Prince Roy
1: with the vote. So, it, uh, yes, uh, well, the difference is the difference between a democracy and a monarchy, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Prince, Prince Roy reigned uh, by dint of birthright uh where and force of arms uh whereas uh president hemingway um rules by dint of popular will um i think that's what i said uh, yeah, more legitimacy well, well no you're no no i, I was pointing out the flaw in your theory you're talking about two different systems um you're maintaining one is more legitimate than the other and i 100 i'm maintaining I, that. I, I as a british person with the coronation coming up refute this entirely <laughs> um I would also say that, of course, um, Prince Roy's realm lasted for a good deal longer uh, than New Atlantis. Indeed, technically speaking, sea land continues to exist today, which is not something one can say for New Atlantis swept from the face of the earth within a year of founding. So um, yeah, maybe that's an argument for monarchy, Brian, that you didn't intend Mm. to make, but I accept your conclusion.
0: Yeah, but weather.
1: Sure. Well, that's, you know, that's God's view on the two systems just you just set out. So. <laughs> okay. I didn't have you down as a monarchist, but I'm delighted to hear it. All
0: right. Uh, I was going to say fair enough, but I can't because it's actually not that fair. Um, and then the serious point, uh, Alex, and I don't think we've talked about this. Maybe we'll talk about it someday, but it kind of brings the podcast And I actually have suicide in my family a couple generations ago. And so I've looked at this very, very carefully, you know, for the sake of my kids and it really does run in families. I mean, I'm there is kidding. a very yeah, genetic, yeah, you know, it's uh, the genetic links to depression, genetic links to um, uh, substance abuse. It's, it's a thing. And um, you know, there's all kinds of sociological factors that weigh in as well uh, with his right. brother. Um, but I, I, have a uh, a close relative who had two brothers both of whom committed suicide oh. under the age of 30 and uh, they're not my brothers but they're you know close to my family and it unfortunately it 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 is kind of mutually reinforcing so
1: not that I knew we were going to get onto this but um as you know um beneath my rugged populist uh, exterior I'm deeply pretentious and i um and i <laughs> you know, studied literature at university and um in the course of that uh, famously ted hughes's uh wife sylvia plath um uh, took her own life yeah but so did his next wife yeah right but they both put their heads in the oven uh, and so there is a point on the other hand so the argument with all these things is always nature versus more of a
0: nurture yeah
1: right so there's all for every example you can not every but you know for for the examples one can find on the side of the debate you are pointing to about genetics on the other hand you can look at a situation and say you know the circumstances around somebody is what leads to to these things and perhaps that people who are two women for argument's sake two women who are both attracted to the same man different stages in his life but the same man um might have predispositions in direction x y or z but in the end you've got to figure it's the environment that's informing uh, even on the most neutral of perspectives um it's the environment that's uh, informing their conclusions i don't mean to be flippant about something so serious but uh, no
0: i think it's also a little bit about the times too right i sure. mean you know i'm sure in um brother hemingway's time there was absolutely no resources uh, for treatment, for uh, counseling, for understanding, or at least none that it would be considered respectable right. to pursue. And one of the things that has advanced, I think, quite well in the, in the 40 years since um, Brother Hemingway uh, took his life is there are a lot of resources and there are a lot of celebrities and sports figures and other people speaking out about what anxiety and what depression can do to you and the fact that there's no shame in seeking help.
1: Well, look, I mean, I, nineteen, I can of course continue to refuse that nineteen eighty two was forty years ago. It must be, it must be twenty years ago? <laughs> uh, after all, I'm a young man. But think um, how I feel. Yeah, but the <laughs> on the other hand, there are plenty of you know, uh, famous films and books about psychotherapy in the sixties and seventies. So there was you know, by the by the time Hemingway, um, Lester Hemingway took his life, there was um, there was a lot of. Um, there was a discipline around, and there was assistance to be had. But I, I certainly, of course, I'm I'm not in any position to dispute your your point that um, those those lines of assistance have evolved markedly between then and now.
0: Well, uh, we'll put some resources in the show notes in case anyone's interested. Um or needs uh, some of that help. But let's uh, let's go back to a little bit lighter mood. Uh, I'm going to sure. pour myself another strain of my... It's actually really good. I'm going to put this uh, recipe in. And you're welcome, viewers, because it's very good. I'm and already on my on second on pour. So. All right. Well,
1: cheers, Brian. Also from more lessons from history. Also from more lessons from history is the story of the third eye. Tuesday, Lobsang Ramper, he was the author of a sensational book called The Third Eye. Not as rude as some may imagine it to be as they <laughs> tune in and listen. It is instead purportedly a memoir written by a man who had a hole drilled into his forehead, hence Third Eye. Rampa, he claimed, grew up in Tibet, and his forehead eye, delivered to him by a suitably trained lama, so please don't try this at home, listeners and viewers, that third eye granted him supernatural powers like clairvoyance, for example. Sure. And so published published 1956. Readers were gripped by this account of the life of a man who saw multiple yetis, who had discovered a mummified body of one of his past incarnations by being guided to it spiritually, explained the head hole drilling experience he'd undergone in grisly detail in the book. And the trouble for him was the book was so successful that interest in its author naturally grew. And it grew, in fact, until a private detective established that Tuesday Lobsang Ramper was Cyril Hoskin, born in mm. Plimpton in Devon, which is a little kind of sub- suburban commuter town now. It was once a little separate town from, from Plymouth. I've been there. Um, and he was born, Cyril Hoskin, to a local plumber and his wife. And of course, the press asked the suddenly shy uh, Lobsang Ramper <laughs> um, as he fled to Ireland and they found him anyway. And. Um, Are you not, in fact, Cyril Hoskin? It's not an unfair question, you might think. Ah, yes, our hero replied. I can see why you might very well think that. But it's really very (laughs) straightforward. I am, in fact, truly Tuesday Lobsang Ramper, and I am occupying the body formerly known as Cyril Hoskin because the unfortunate Mr. Hoskin fell out of a tree in his garden in Thames Ditton whilst trying to photograph an owl. It's obvious now. I explain isn't it the detail is important for every story uh, absolutely and as a result of this knock on the head in his garden in thames ditton as he fell he entered a mental state which permitted me to communicate with him and i tuesday lobsang ramper explained my need for a body and as it turns out would you adam and eve it Uh, Cyril Hoskin was rather unhappy with his unrewarding life and thought it was a jolly good idea to give up the body he was squatting in for yours truly, Tuesday lobsang ramper. And well, here we are. It's obvious. Now, even putting aside, Brian, the ethical questions around body occupation, Body snatching? Well, let's say surrender to you whilst the incumbent has given his consent whilst in a concussed bird-watching condition. The sadly cynical members of the fourth estate and their readers were generally not buying this explanation, Uh, even though, of course, it it very helpfully um, set out the reasons for why the um, otherwise inexplicable uh, fact that uh, Cyril had never been to Tibet and never spoke any Tibetan, uh, which you might otherwise have expected him to have. And and so what if you don't believe me, uh, Lobsang? paraphrasingly said you know prophets are never without honor except in their own country so i'll emigrate to canada and maintain to the credulous that i am indeed tuesday lobsang Ramper. a point i support by the way with something brian told me just before we started recording that there is still a facebook page oh yeah tuesday lobsang Ramper. At they're tuesday. out there so you know uh, there's no there's always somebody credulous around and you know whilst i'm in canada i'll bang out another 18 books which sell pretty well while i'm at it Look, I mean, there are plenty of authors who long for such success. This might be thought a rather extreme way to achieve it. And Cyril Ramper uh, maintained with a straight face that this was all true until his dying day. A couple of footnotes. Uh, First is, bright spot for Cyril Tuesday, Henry, Lobsang, Hoskin, Ramper. Decently enough, whilst unsurprisingly keen to stress that this was an unmitigated hoax from start to finish. The Dalai Lama was frank in his praise uh, that the book had helped to promote the t- cause of Tibet. Right? So even the worst yeah. kinds of charlatans can have good outcomes. And the second point I wanted to mention is the lesson uh, from history here. And it's obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. Bird watching has become increasingly popular amongst gentlefolk drawn to peace and beauty in recent years. And those people are plainly unaware of the dangers being drawn into surrendering their bodies to the spirits of passing exiled Tibetans in so yeah. doing. And so, listeners to the Hidden History Happy Hour, you cannot say that we did not warn you.
0: Yeah, you're out photographing a great northern Gamecock, and the next thing you know, you're a
1: Dalai Lama. Boom. Your body's been taken. I, there's also an interesting, I, I'm conscious that I said he, he wrote 18 successful books, and that's kind of true. Uh, in the interest of accuracy, I'll point out. Only 17 of them were by him. One was by a (laughs) ghost writer who piggybacked on Lobsang Rampa's fame to write a book about him meeting leaders from other planets. You may think his objection uh, was uh, of course about um, distorting the amazing truth he was otherwise telling. But funnily enough, having initially refused permission to print the book in the face of the terrible pressure that could be exercised by Financial inducements. Sure. um Rampa agreed to bend his hitherto iron commitment to authorial <laughs> veracity, and it went to print with him doing this communication with extraterrestrials, as long as they made um, two very slight editorial changes and gave 10% of the profits to the Save a Cat League. So, you know, philanthropy as well, right, uh, comes into uh, Lobstein Rampa's story.
0: Well, there's a certain amount of
1: religious and philosophical and
0: supernatural arrogance that infects us all as uh our our viewers will know from our last two episodes where you were out you know romping around the world doing your shit um i've spent a bunch of time in israel recently and there is i can't i can't improve on shakespeare more twixt heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy now does that support Yes. Well, sure. But I'm
1: not, I don't need to name the character, but um, Uh, I was just showing off. Remember, I told you I was deeply pretentious. You knew that anyway, but some of our listeners, (laughs) it may have escaped them even after a year of the podcast. I just want to demonstrate my, you know, I'm erudite. So anyway, go ahead. Mission accomplished. (laughs)
0: Uh, There's just a lot out there. And, uh, you know, I I think our viewers will know that my father was an Episcopal minister, but he strayed far from doctrine. And one of the things he said to me, which I'm sure wasn't an original idea by him, was if you imagine a an all-powerful supernatural being is going to reveal itself over centuries and generations to all societies on Earth, why would you believe that it's going to get written down the same way? And there are so many consistencies between the, at least the big fundamental religions that it could all be ascribed to translation error. And I'm not saying Tuesday is part of that, but... As our listeners will know, as the grandson of the authors of Flying Saucer Pilgrimage, which includes a transcript of my grandfather's conversation with the Alien Collective, I'm not
1: throwing stones. Well, I hear you. Um, I hear you. Hinduism is a bit different to christianity the monotheistic faiths are different to to, to the other faiths in, true. in a couple of fundamentals but i'm gonna accept a, a big part of your premise and if certainly if you think about all the ways that these faiths um are or, or are meant to manifest themselves in uh, learning the by learning the book um recital um sacrifice charity for the poor uh demonstration of rituals and rites. all those um things are in different ways, honouring thy father and mother. Yeah, you, um, yeah. Uh, festivals around the year, pilgrimage. Um, these, those are all um, shared points, I suppose.
0: Now, of course, Marx would say all those things happened because humanity needed them at very of times, right? Yeah. And if what did he say? If God didn't exist, man would have had to invent him.
1: Which yeah, that's, is that's what we say about our monarchy.
0: However, many. ways. <laughs> however however many words that is uh, it's like 12 13 words you can wrap your mind around that endlessly but we're not going to do that today ladies and gentlemen because what we're going to do is finish out our first hidden history happy hour of 2023 our second year um by saying go to our website tell us what episodes you want us to feature in our retrospective from last year next episode We're going to talk about our London live event coming up. Join us. And Alex,
1: cheers. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Corr,
0: Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.